Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Good to see you. So excited to see so many folks here. Um, welcome to the new writing series. We're super, super excited to have the fabulous Isha Sabatini Sloan here with us today uh, reading. Um, I am I will not be uh, introducing Isha, uh, but I just want to uh, say a few words of, of thanks and gratitude. Um, first, I want to thank uh, Aidan LaRue and Evelyn Murdoch, who work alongside me on the series, and they do such fabulous work of organizing and, and getting this series all set up for you. So huge thanks to Aidan and Evelyn. I want to thank in the administration as well, I'd like to thank Derek Chin and Danica Chan, I'd also like to thank our director, uh, the director of our MFA program, Anna Joy Springer. Um, just to kind of uh, point out some uh, upcoming readings, uh, we have Eileen Miles reading for us uh, next uh, Thursday evening. Um, and that'll be, it's a little different time and date. So it's going to be Thursday at 6.30. And it's also going to be over in the library, in uh, the, the Seuss room of, of Geisel. So come out for that next Thursday, Eileen Miles. And then the week after that, November 15th, another Wednesday at 4.30 reading, we have Chiwan Choi coming uh, to read, us a read for us a fabulous poet um, coming uh coming down from Los Angeles. So looking forward to that. Okay. Well, uh, without further ado, uh, our introducers today for Isha is Aidan LaRue and Calvin Wald. Put your hands together, please. All right, afternoon. <clears throat> so I was born and raised in Detroit, and like Aisha Sabina Sloan, Detroit has been inevitable. I often return there in the summers to see my family, to ride through the city streets to envelop the beautiful landscapes of Coney Islands and liquor stores and hair salons and open green fields between houses. So I was excited to, to read Aisha's work in which Detroit lives, even in the title, Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit. Isha reckons with the liquid consequences of the embodied present that is filled with an accumulated concrete and often violent past of urbanity, race, policing, and art, and the liquid consequences. It offers a model of how to reconcile and confront the materiality and chaos of our lives in the way of James Baldwin staring straight into bloody puddles on the sidewalk. This past summer while back in Detroit, I helped teach kids to swim in some of the few remaining public pools as a way to help undo our estrangement from the water. There was a day that a kid in the pool got nervous and started pulling on the other kids in the pool, causing a cascading effect where every kid became scared of being submerged and began crying, yelling in the water. All of the adults, including myself, jumped into the water to get everyone out, and then we stood at the edge of the pool, shaking. Isha begins in an effective place of murky, police, precarious waters, swimming pools with streaks of chlorinated water. And with this water, we moved through cities, from helicopters and most wanted billboards in Los Angeles, to Baltimore in the back of a police van, back to Detroit, to the east and west sides where arrestees console cops over low wages and cousins give warnings about gas station parking lots. Sometimes these movements between cities sting and leave our eyes red. Mine were read at witnessing through the test aspects of my city that I often neglect for optimistic delusion. But as the Basquiat notebook scribble referenced in the text states, spirit moved across the water and there was light. It was good. When Sloan writes, there is no way to explain our wiring to someone whose fairy tale has always ended somewhere like Florida. It is true. And yet, in Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, she brings us as close as we can to witness her wiring as she masterfully braids together the works of Richard Diebenkorn, David Hockney, and Joan Didion with her lived experiences in Los Angeles, Detroit, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Her disquieting lyrical nonfiction oscillates between opera and ride-alongs, videos of brutal police shootings, and advertisements for dentists on social media in order to bring her readers to a point of leaking. While we spill over, she probes the rupture with no intention to patch that puncture. 
In this aqueous body, her essays are like an underwater detonation, flames contained by the fluid body. And now, though I wish I could keep pontificating on your lush world um, of Isha's essays for a little while, I'll tell you about her myriad accomplishments. She's the author of The Fluency of Light, Coming of Age in a Theater of Black and White, and the aforementioned Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit, which is just released on October 23rd, so as close as you can get to that definition of hot off the presses. Um, And Dreaming of Ramadi in Detroit was selected by Maggie Nelson for the 1913 uh, Prose Open Press, Open Prose Book Prize, and she has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her work has been published on Guernica, Catapult, The Offing, Callaloo, and The Southern Review, among many others. And she has taught at the University of Arizona Pima Community College, the University of Michigan's New England Literature Program, NELP, Carleton College, and OSU Cascades Low Residency MFA Program. Please welcome Isha. Oh, yeah. Um, I was tearing up. That was really a moving reflection. Um, it really, most of the time feels like you're writing into a, vo- I'm writing into a void or into like social me- the social media void or I don't know exactly. Um, so it's really moving to hear your words and your ideas being processed through someone else's experience. And I love that kind of terrifying image of the young kids in the pool. Um, and that experience of fear, which I hope they <laughs> moved away from. Um, but thank you so much for having me here. Um, this is a really exciting kind of place to be as this book is moving into the world because it's my press home's home. And even though um, Sandra and Ben can't be here tonight, um, I feel a lot of enormous gratitude um, toward them and for this place. So it feels like a good place to be um, right now. Um, and I think I will start by reading, um, um, the piece that refers to swimming. Um, it just feels like a good place to start and we'll see if we need any more than that. I think that might be good for this amount of time. Um, but anyway, thank you so much to everyone who's made this possible, especially Brandon, um, who rescued me from my horrible sense of direction a few minutes ago while <laughs> I was lost at the ATMs. <laughs> so I almost didn't make it. Um, so this, this is called A Clear Presence. When I was in junior high school, my mother, oh, and also just, if you have a difficult to pronounce name, I'm finding it's really helpful to have an essay in which you explain the pronunciation of your name really early on, because then it just sort of, not only is it a way of knowing, you know, if people read certain pieces, it's also um, just a helpful way to explain how to pronounce your name. So that'll come up in a second. A clear presence. When I was in junior high school, my mother and I heard the sound of helicopters while house-sitting for friends in the Hancock Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. We had just come in from using the swimming pool when someone on a megaphone instructed us to come outside with our hands up. When we did, policemen were facing the house with guns pointing toward the door. Neighbors were standing on their porches in alarm, and a helicopter was hovering overhead. Our dog ran outside, and we squealed with terror that they shouldn't shoot her. It turned out that we had accidentally triggered the security system's distress signal, and it took a while for them to determine that we were not being taken hostage. But the incident was, in some ways, an elaborate confirmation of a feeling that I had held already about that house and the city in general, that even though we had permission to be there, we had somehow managed to trespass. When he was a young man, the Olympic diver Sammy Lee was allowed to use the public pool only on a certain day in the week reserved for people of color. After that day, the pool was drained and refilled for the comfort of the white patrons. 
My father remembers hearing during an interview with Lee that the diver returned years later after his win and confronted the people who maintained the pool to ask why they felt the need to drain it, as if his Korean background and the black skin of his friend had somehow infected the water. They told him that to the contrary, they always considered the order ludicrous. Rather than draining the pool as they'd been told, they would lock the doors for a couple hours and add a little extra chlorine to satiate the people in charge. But the fact of Lee's exclusion, the lie of his body being a contaminant, had already influenced his understanding of the world. In a recurring dream, I'm swimming in somebody else's pool. The city is always Los Angeles, the grounds are always well-maintained, and there's always, often a flourishing garden filled with climbing ja vines of jasmine, bucanvillea, and bird of paradise. The house to which the pool belongs is empty. I might get out of the water to wander around, always with the sense that while I've been invited, I'm not supposed to be there. In his book on lucid dreaming, B. Allen Wallace writes that the dreamer can prepare to awaken in his sleep by following the Buddhist practice of shamatha before bedtime. Quote, the mind's distractions are stilled so that one's attention can eventually rest comfort comfortably and effortlessly on a chosen object for hours on end. End quote. In the attempt to cultivate this ability, I stare at a coffee cup on the table in front of me. I feel flickers of that sensation I used to know well as a child, when I could look at a truck parked on the street outside of our apartment and feel that the world radiated out in all directions, that infinity existed inside of each scene and every second, like the sound of wind or falling water. Once in a museum in London, I saw a set of portraits by the painter David Hockney. Everyone portrayed in that particular series worked as a docent in a museum. Hockney sometimes uses a roller in his painting so that the shape and shadow that realistically depict a nose or chin float inside a stilled space that has been divorced from the rippling pulse of passing time. If, as curators have demonstrated, you look at the Polaroid image that was used as a reference for the portrait that Hockney would later create, you can see the way that he brings the friends he paints into a new realm by stripping away the subtlest of layers, creating a dimension that is at once matte and luminous, breathing and flat. And though I've only had a handful of lucid dreams myself, I wonder if Hockney's realm isn't just that quiet landscape of a lucid dream a distillation and capture of that intangible state of being that we have talked to death can't possibly bear utter again, but still seem desperate to enter. Through his brush, the present moment becomes a kind of shoebox diorama inside which the viewer can wander, take refuge, and maybe a nap. Though he made much of his work in a studio just large enough to fit his giant canvases, Hockney helped to establish what Christopher Simon Sykes describes as an image of California as a carefree land of sunshine, affluence, and leisure by painting its wealthiest citizens and their swimming pools. But while presenting California as an idle playground for the rich, Hockney also engaged with a meditation not unlike Shamatha, devoting himself to the task of rendering water with a diligence of spirit that he himself compared to Leonardo da Vinci's. This meditation involved grappling with the essence of movement and time. He studied the way that sunlight manifested itself through dancing lines of light, explaining, water in a swimming pool is different from, say, water in the river, which is mostly a reflection because the water isn't clear. A swimming pool has clarity. The water is transparent and drawing transparency as an interesting graphic problem. Rodney King was swimming on the first day he ever heard the word nigger. His small self popped out of the water only to dodge a fast passing stone. It was the first time he realized that he wasn't just a kid, he was a black kid. Despite the life he would live thereafter, King writes that it was the saddest day in creation for me. He wishes he could find a way of forever removing that day from every black child's life. As I was growing up, 
African names were pronounced to elicit humor. People like to exaggerate the Y sound, the E sounds, the funky Q pronounced with a flip of the head, and a series of snaps. As one of the only people of color in my school, I hated to have my difference pointed out to me and got famously angry anytime someone pronounced my name with three syllables, Aisha, instead of the two, Isha, that my parents had used since I was born. The formal, former pronunciation of my name was featured in Aisha by another bad creation, and my classmates were not about to let me forget it, especially the part about how she has a big fanny. That was really my only complaint with the song. Otherwise, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Whenever somebody wanted to laugh, they could sing the chorus, and I would explode into what I did not realize at the time was a vaguely self-hating rage. During a game of Gaga one afternoon, I responded to the taunting by slapping the singer, a girl with whom I was both friends and bitter enemies, on the back. She responded in kind, until we were engaged in a full-out brawl, to the entertainment of everyone in the auditorium. We began to giggle soon after the after-school director pulled us apart, but the incident cemented my reputation as an e easily coaxed spitfire, ready to face off with anyone who dared call attention to my membership to that blackness, the one that was in the process of being celebrated or objectified, depending on the viewer, through shows like Martin and In Living Color. I grew up in an apartment building two blocks away from where Nicole Brown Simpson was nearly decapitated alongside Ron Goldman, who worked in a restaurant up the hill from our house, our home. My mother and her friend passed by Simpson's condominium on an evening stroll about an hour before the murders were committed. Perhaps because the only known black male resident of this neighborhood was O.J. Simpson, the community has for as long as I can remember acted toward my father and me as though we wandered into that place by accident. If I was wearing a thick coat or heavy sweatshirt, grown adults would cross the street to avoid me while I was walking my dog at night. Women held their purses tighter when my father stood behind them at the bank, and he was frequently approached by patrolmen, accused of looking like he didn't belong while walking in a sweatsuit through his own garage. Recently, while walking on the sidewalk, I trailed behind an African-American man who was pushing a cart of his belongings down the middle of the street, his back sloped nearly parallel to the ground. I grew nervous when a car started to drive quickly up the road behind him without seeming to know he was there. The driver of the car was black. Up ahead, I heard a second car swerve quickly and somebody beeped. As the white driver of this other car drove the opposite direction, drove from the opposite direction, I could hear him shout out of his open window, get the fuck out of Brentwood. Whether he was talking about the homeless man or the driver who swerved around him, I felt strangely relieved by the outburst, as if the source of my discomfort in this neighborhood was finally being spoken out loud. Of the night of his beating, King writes in his autobiography, I could smell the hatred. It was a clear presence. In 1978, David Hockney began work on a series entitled Paper Pools, including 29 color pictures created by pressing paper pulp. As Nico Stangos writes, the project allowed him to bring together many of the themes he loves most. The paradox of freezing in a still image, what was never still, water, the swimming pool, this man-made container of nature, set in nature, which it reflects, the play of light on water, the dematerialized diver's figure underwater. Hockney recalls, as the time had gone on and the sun wasn't coming out as much now and the days were cloudy, the water began to look a bit different and the tones were all over blue. It rained and when it rained, the steps started with a deep blue at the top and the blue faded as the water got more opaque because of the rain. And I thought the water looked wetter. It was all wet now. Now it was all about wetness. In one Polaroid picture that Hockney used as inspiration for an image entitled Pool with Cloud Refle Reflections, the water is nearly indistinguishable from the sky it reflects. The clean line shadow of a building amplifies the bright lines of an overhead cloud, making it difficult to know whether the sky is being reflected on the water 
or through the trick of glass and shadow, water is being reflected onto the sky. The picture encapsulates what must have drawn the Hockney to return time and time again to this particular subject. Quote, depending on the weather, whether it was cloudy or sunny, each day was different. You could look right through it, into it, onto it. Though they might not perceive it while underwater, a swimmer in such a scene would seem to be moving through two realms at once, gliding weightless through the water and at the same time moving through those darkening clouds, their edges set aglow by the same sun deepening the shadow of the surrounding trees. The image calls to mind the web of emotions I swam through while dreaming again of pools last night. This time I did so with a former lover whose absence still makes me nauseous. Reentering through dream the confines of a relationship that just ended, it is like I am moving through two elements at once, water and air, two states of being, occupying a self that has not yet had to grieve the loss. I remember in the dreams I've had of pools in the past, craving the house nearby. I feel a sense of separation from the very notion of a home. Even if I were able to walk inside, feet leaving a trail of puddles behind me, I would not be able to know it. The comfort of having arrived constantly eludes me. According to B. Allen Wallace, the lucid dreamer is given an opportunity. You come upon an old fear and may be able to confront that fear lucidly in your dreams, repeatedly, and overcome it. For example, you may forgive and be forgiven by placing yourself in a replica of an original situation that traumatized you or caused you embarrassment. By revisiting it, you may accept and integrate a situation that occurred years ago, but that is still disturbing you. I really want to talk about Stranger Things right now, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Before he died, Rodney King took part in a reality TV show on VH1 in which celebrity guests moved in together as they went through rehab under the guidance of Dr. Drew, Drew Pinsky. He had been a lifelong alcoholic, and his own drunkenness on the day he led the police on a car chase contributed to his feelings of guilt, as though perhaps he deserved to have been beaten to a pulp. Dr. Drew tells him that he's sorry for the way King was treated. King writes, I never get tired of hearing that I didn't deserve what those police did to me. For the purposes of the show, King was taken to the site of the beating. I looked around and just took everything in, he writes. It was a day that couldn't decide whether it wanted to be cloudy or sunny, and I remember feeling kind of hazy myself about whether whatever we were planning to do next. But Dr. Drew kept saying that this was a good way to get closure on the whole, whole ordeal, and I definitely felt that 17 years was a long enough time to be tormented and unresolved. As we lingered there for a few moments, all the conflicting feelings inside me, all that rage kind of took a breath, quieted down enough for me to ask, okay, Rodney, now what are you going to do here? Not for the cameras, but for yourself. Make this true. Make this count. When he returned home after the show ended, clear-headed and optimistic, he returned to a mess. There was a toilet seat out back and an empty pool with gunk in it. In an image called Green Pool with Diving Board and Shadow, the world around Hockney's pool has a nightmarish feel, blackness interspersed with what look to be bright red shrubs, as though an apocalypse were flaming outside the confines of the pool. On a recent afternoon, I stood at the sink. For some reason, the hot water stream was especially thin, and I was listening to a story about an explosion in Damascus. It occurred to me that water is a resource, that riots are about resources, and I felt perilously close to the way that pending water crisis would resolve itself socially, politically. After the police who beat him were acquitted in 1992, before the L.A. riots began to unfold around him, Rodney King and his family sat on tattered lawn furniture in the yard. A signal flare shot out through the sky over South Central. One of his cousins drove up to the house and began to unload boxes of stolen diapers, food, and liquor charred from a fire. As they began to perceive what was happening, King went up to the attic and grabbed an old Bob Marley wig he used to keep around for Halloween. 
You could tell it was me with all them. You could never tell it was me with all them dreadlocks hanging down. But after nearing the scene, he had to stop. Quote, I sensed that terrible presence of hatred that I felt the night of the beating, that palpable wall of loathing that was absolutely suffocating. I mean, there were sounds like I never heard before, like evil erupting. I lowered the window and heard what I thought was a high-tension wire that had snapped off from its tower and was spraying sparks all over the place. That's when he turned around and headed the fuck out of there. At home, he watched the news in horror. A construction worker was forcibly removed from his truck and robbed. One person smashed his forehead open with a car stereo. Another rioter tried to slice his ear off. A crowd spray-painted the man's body and genitals black. King mentions the hundred or so soldiers in camouflage who were called in to bring the destruction under control, pointing out that one of the guards admitted that they were all ill-prepared and said that street duty for riots worried them more than being called up for the Gulf War. Later in life, King explains to a reporter for the New York Times, I don't want to be remembered as the person who started the riots. I'd like to be remembered for the person who threw water on the whole thing. Part of the solution, you know? At the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, I stand behind a class of children being taught how to see a David Hockney painting of Los Angeles. What is a landscape? The teacher asks. A boy raises his hand and explains, a landscape is land that is curved. The children point out that the trees at the bottom of the painting don't look like real trees. An African-American boy is handed a paintbrush and asked to imagine the strokes that would have been required to create the gaping, colorful cityscape that hangs before him. Hockney eventually tired of painting the swimming pool. In a video review of a bigger picture, Alistair Suk walks through the exhibition halls at the Royal Academy of Arts describing the conventional pastoral scenes with an air of disappointment. Here, though, he says, heartened, you have something else. There's a very, as you can see, vivid, intense palette. It has an almost religious vision intensity. Sook continues, it doesn't take very long to look at that tree stump and to look at those chopped up logs awaiting collection and start seeing symbols of mortality. Hockney has managed to take quite an everyday humdrum scene in Yorkshire, something really with very little mystery, and imbue it with power and strangeness. The images here are convoluted. Trees are blue, pink, and yellow, and the tone is one of a brightly colored nightmare. Were you flying? B. Allen Wallace asks. Passing through walls? Walking on water? What about odd and repeated environments? Do you frequently find yourself in the same dreamscape? Are the surroundings odd? Blue plants, purple sky, red clouds, two suns? If so, you can remind yourself that you're dreaming and navigate the dream as though you were awake. You can practice walking over tall bridges, experiencing the sense of height, while sim simultaneously aware that it is all a dreamscape. You can jump off the bridge if you like, and you will merely float down to earth. In February of 2013, an African-American man who claimed that he'd been unfairly terminated from the Los Angeles Police Department went on a rampage. He wrote out a long list of people who should expect to be targeted and was ultimately accused of killing four people, including the daughter of a former police captain and her fiancé. What was most frightening about him was how well he knew the system that sought to catch him. He said that he knew the routes that his colleagues took to and from work, their children's best friends and recess, even the hours when their girlfriends went to the gym. It was one of the biggest manhunts in California history. In the very lengthy manifesto he posted on Facebook, Christopher Dorner asks his reader, Are you aware that an officer seen on the Rodney King videotape striking Mr. King multiple times with a baton on, three, on March 3, 1991, is still employed by the LAPD and is now a captain on the police department? Death, he claimed, was the only way to get anyone's attention about the inequities of a flawed system. One of the in incidents that Dorner contests in his manifesto took place during his days as a recruit. In, tr in trying to paint a portrait of Dorner as an aggressor, officers accused him of bullying a Jewish colleague. 
Dorner argues that it was he who stood up for the man whose father had survived a concentration camp when a group of recruits sang Nazi Hitler youth songs about burning Jewish ghettos in World War II Germany. During the peak of the manhunt for Dorner, I went on a Friday night date to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Dorner's face, eerily cheerful, was lit up on neon billboards all over the city, and in some ways his presence acted as a kind of secondary exhibition as we wandered through the museum. The sound of a helicopter permeated the galleries of one wing, and even after I found the source of the sound in a dark room with a projected video, I couldn't help peeking out the windows, fully anticipating a shootout in the museum's atrium. I peered closely at a small black-and-white photograph of what looked to be an emptied swimming pool somewhere in Southern California, in which someone had erected a paper sign that read, Holy. Later that night, my date would talk about the incongruity of Dorner's smiling face, given his crimes. He must be in so much pain, he would say, and start to cry. The rampage and manhunt remind me of the day my mother and I sat in a living room filled with cigarette smoke while I got my hair braided. A little girl with severe autism ran in circles through the house, the woman braiding my hair acting as though we weren't actually there, despite the fact that she was touching me. The television played a movie that I did not think I was going to be able to stomach, but to my surprise, 15 or so minutes into the Michael Douglas film, Falling Down, I found myself filled with adrenaline, even laughing at points as the actor walked through the city of Los Angeles with measured gait, full of venom, attempting to right wrongs with weapons that he picked up along the way, including a rocket launcher. Our laughter seemed to say, couldn't we all sympathize with his ennui? Weren't we all sick to death of the traffic and the bullshit? I understood even then as a child to feel pride about the fact that this film took place in Los Angeles. We are the city of rampages and riots, the home of the white Bronco. On television, a male reporter sounds annoyed with his female colleague as he asks her for new information, saying her name, Gigi, over and over again. Dorner's car was last seen in Big Bear and journalists, SWAT teams, and police officers have swarmed the San Bernardino Mountains. The news camera stands by as a group of officers searches through the trunk of a car, looking for weapons, for bodies, for Dorner. In one shot, a camera mounted on a helicopter shows the cabins from above, and the distortion in the video makes it look as though the snow-covered trees are pink. The Los Angeles Police Department and the media covering the Dorner episode focus on one key point. Dorner was angry about being fired, but his manifesto makes it hard to cast his motivation as simple rejection. He writes that the weapons he is using on this rampage are the same ones that were used in Tucson at Sandy Hook and Aurora, and that they shouldn't be accessible to him or anyone else. He calls the president of the NRA vile and inhumane and tells the Westboro Baptist Church that they can burn slowly in a fire, not from smoke inhalation, but from the flames and only the flames. He thanks the woman he has dated over the course of his life for great and sometimes not so great sex. <laughs> it's kind of, there's some funny parts, honestly. He thinks, and I kind of want to go back to the Mio Farrow and Bill Cosby part because I'm curious now. Um, this was before the most recent Bill Cosby kind of um, explosion, but he thinks his friends and sells them, tells them that he loves them. He mentions that Dave Brubeck's Take Five is the best piece of music ever written. He voices his support for gay marriage, quotes Mia Farrow, and gives Bill Cosby some advice. He mentions a favorite quote of his brother's written by D.H. Lawrence. I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever feeling sorry for itself, said in context. I still hear reports on the radio stating that the LAPD found Dorner's body in a cabin. But the event, like Dorner's motivation, was much hazier than this. In an article entitled How Law Enforcement and Media Covered Up the Plan to Burn Christopher Dorner Alive, Max Blumenthal writes that after Dorner engaged in a shootout resulting in the death of an officer, the deputies decided to burn the cabin down. A single shot was heard before the fire burned through the interior, which may have signaled Dorner's suicide. 
A local TV station, KCAL 9, accidentally broadcast a deputy shouting, Burn that fucking house down. On the internet later, a photograph will flash across the screen, and for a moment I won't be able to tell if what I'm looking at is the meteorite that just hit Russia or the burnt remains of the cabin where Christopher Dorner's body burned. As a child, Rodney King used to swim or fish with his father and brother in the irrigation canals near his grandmother's Sacramento home. I loved the way I looked, he remembers, the way my body sucked up the sunshine, the way my hair dried off with a shake. As an adult, he, he looked himself up on the internet and found that his name had become a piece of slang. When someone has been beaten by the police, you might say he's been Rodney Kinged. He writes, Rodney Kinged? So now I've even become a verb, but when will I become a real person, a whole person? On a hot, still, cloudless day, Hockney's biographer Christopher Simon Sykes writes, with the sun at its highest in the sky, the heat at its most intense, and the surface of the water in the swimming pool, mill pond calm, a diver has leapt from the diving board and disappeared into the depths of the pool, gone forever, his existence marked only by a violent eruption of water that is in complete contrast to the ongoing stillness of the scene. Of taking his award-winning dive, Dr. Sammy Lee recalls, the pool had a skylight, and when I went up to do my last dive, a forward three-and-a-half somersault, the sun broke through the clouds, and I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. When I heard that King had died, two de details in particular stuck out to me. One was that he died in a swimming pool. The other was that earlier that day somebody had heard him scream. As Anthony McCartney writes, neighbor Sandra Gardia heard sobbing from his house earlier that morning. She said, it sounded like someone really crying, like really deep emotions, like tired or sad, you know? The way Hockney describes a body in a pool is not unlike the image we've seen time and time again of King's face after he was beaten. If somebody went under the water or made a splash, the splash was on the water's surface, and you could look into the water and the figure was distorted. He notes, the arms become long, the body goes odd, and you begin to look like a lobster or a crab. I tried to write an essay about David Hockney and Rodney King once before, before King passed away. While doing research, I became obsessed by a particular painting that Hockney had created of a Beverly Hills housewife. Painted one year after the Watts riots, Hockney's housewife gazes idly outside the range of the portrait. She is miles away, but I want badly to imagine that she can hear the sound of sirens. I wish that she could at least smell the smoke. If you don't know Los Angeles, Rodney King writes, it's hard to explain how different it is from the pictures you see on television and in the movies. No pretty palm trees and manicured lawns or any of that. No fancy boutiques or pretty buildings with shiny windows. All the big houses of Beverly Hills may only be about 10 miles to the north, and the beautiful beach houses on the ocean in Malibu only about 10 miles to the west. But those places might as well be a million miles away. Before he died, Anthony McCartney writes, a severely intoxicated Rodney King was seen by his girlfriend making grunting and growling sounds and having frothy secretions coming from his mouth. While she was calling for help, she heard a splash. By the time she got to the pool, King's body was face down in the deep end. While he studied the swimming pool in the process of painting a bigger splash, Cockney recalls, what amused me was the fact that the splash only lasts a very, very short time. He explains, a photograph can freeze it, and that's not what it's like. When you paint it, you can make it flow. That's it. Thank you. So, um, yeah. I thought maybe, is it okay to have a little chat now, or Absolutely. does that sound good? Yeah. So I'm available if you have anything you want to talk about. I could start. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that reading. That was fantastic. Um, thank uh, you. It's so good to hear that essay out loud. Um, 
I, I think I, I, my intention of the question is to get you kind of to talk a little bit about process. Um, I think what's so um, amazing about that essay is the way in which you're dealing with pools and water and this idea of fluency, which is kind of continuing your work with your first book, too, and fluids, and thinking about the way in which all these, I mean, I come from Arizona, right, Phoenix, and it's all these swimming pools when you fly over, right? And yeah. Thinking about the way pools are these um, uh, places of reflection in some ways, right? And I yeah. think that what you do in that essay is, is, is uh, uh, work marvelously through reflection, bringing so many disparate strands together. Um, I think that uh, this, towards the end of the essay, when you get Hockney and Rodney King finally in the pool together, in yeah. ways, right? it's just, it's astounding into the way in which you uh, move from Hockney's description of, of diving in the water and then move that into talking about King. So I'm just wondering, uh, 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 what's my question? So my question is, can you talk a little bit about process and how um, this essay came together for you. It's so funny reading it again and um, thinking about that as I'm reading it because I feel like even just hearing like an anecdote about children in a swimming pool and like just I don't know the the idea of how water you know ex- is experienced as like a, a metaphor or something for a reader helps me understand what was going on and trying to connect those things because it felt very haphazard until it it happened. And when I said that I wrote an essay about, I tried to write an essay before about David Hockney and Rodney King, um, I think I, I'd written kind of a version of this that was really sloppy and it didn't feel like it was going anywhere. Um, and it just as as soon as I heard the news that Rodney King had died, it was like, oh, that essay wasn't ready to be written yet. And in all of these strange ways, it feels as though the swimming pool was never on my radar as re- as relevant to Rodney King's life. And so it just um, there are things that I think of all of the essays that I've written, this feels like the kind of the spookiest in some ways because it really kind of came together. Um. In chunks, and and I just had for a long time this um, little piece of paper that said Rodney King swimming pools on it, and um, it was just something I like. That's all I really knew that I wanted to th- think through. And another thing, as I was reading, that it occurred to me really sort of pushed this essay out was I was telling my dad, who's a reporter and who actually interviewed Sammy Lee for a project called Voices of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and he was like, oh, you know, I was just like, I'm thinking about Ronnie King and swimming pools. Go. And he was, I mean, it was more casual than that. And he was like, you know, Sammy Lee said, you know, this one thing about swimming pools. And for some reason, that anecdote and that thread felt really instrumental also in bringing the essay together. But again, I'm sort of curious, like when you said reflection, I'm curious to see why I wrote the essay from other people. And when I read passages that are, you know, descriptions of of pools or place, I'm sort of curious. It seems like I'm trying to give space for people to kind of have an imaginative, almost like visioning experience along with me. And I'm just sort of curious. I feel like in some ways the um, the kind of uh, purpose for writing it is still kind of a question for me. And I know that's not really a question of process, but it, it, it really felt like it was one of those things that kind of came together. Um, like I was just kind of like following these little... Um, things in the forest and then suddenly it was there and I was like what is this and I wrote it out and that's what the essay was and I'm still kind of discovering what it is uh, it was a beautiful essay thank was, you uh, to me it was a very eloquent argument for the humanity uh, because in a world that's sort of so good at objectification of things particularly because we so much believe in science and this seems to be is trying to create a space in which art presents another reality, hmm. something that's more real, actually, than the objectification of, let's say, news photographers and so forth. And, and 
I think that's kind of related to a kind of primitive thought that this is a gateway into another reality. One of the things about the arts and the humanities that people don't understand is that a work of art is already a theory. Hmm. It's not the thing itself. It's already a theory because that's interpreted through an artist's eye just making a theoretical thing about another real, another real reality. And I, I think quite often we just have this division between objective and subjective. And I think you're trying to argue that there's actually a, a, a third way hmm. in between in which the subject through theory is opening up another world of understanding that's in some way more real to individuals than the objectification of, of things, okay? even though that has this productive sense of power. Because it seems to me objectification has more to do with not truth, but an access to power. Hmm. I mean, you have the power to create a bridge, for instance, or you have the power to you know, create clones or whatever. That has more to do with power, whereas if this is trying to seek a pathway to a kind of like, uh, kind of soulful truth, mm -hmm. so pathway. So I think, I think this is a good of an argument for the humanity. Is a pretty much anything I've heard. I'm, I feel so honored by that. <laughs> That's, thank you so much for that generous comment. Thank you. Any other questions or, yeah? Um, I was just a little curious in terms of um, what the, the piece or the book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, um, how that affected, like, the, like how it kind of tied in through your piece. That was definitely another important thread. Um, and it's interesting because reading back on this, it's sort of was an early moment in my exploration of some of those things. And so... Um, it's kind of interesting to kind of look back on what became, what ended up playing a bigger role in my life for a while and sort of ends up being a real through line through all of the essays. Um, and I don't know, I feel like that was also a time period in my life when a lot of friends were constantly sharing their dreams and talking about lucid dreaming and using lucid dreaming. Um, but I feel like maybe this idea of like the third option or of like a dimensionality, I feel like that helped create that feeling that we have these other ways of other kinds of intelligence that are available to us. Um, and it was just beautifully written too. So it helped um, tie things together. But even just the act of medita meditating, I think has helped with me in the creation of all of these essays to sort of, um, like I said about, you know, sort of working on an essay that I didn't understand what it was supposed to be and then finding out when Ronnie King died, oh, it was the swimming pool. But how, you know, how would that have been clear before? I feel like uh, meditation sort of like helped me with a certain kind of patience, like in the research process. Um, and dreaming, I think, is another really important point of access that we have to, our, you know, our own ideas and emotions and futures. I mean, just in terms of how we feel and I don't know, everyone has a different opinion, I'm sure, about what, what dreams are about. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about the, the form of that. It's, it's using a lot of citations, a lot of other people's language. So there's a biographer writing about David Hockney. There's the lucid dreaming text. And then Rodney King's own words. Um, I, since the essay also seems to operate like a like a guided reading through these other texts, I was just wondering what your relation was to to the words of others and, and how to, how you're using them, as well as sort of reading the essay as reading. Hmm. Can you? expand a little bit on that last part, reading the essay as reading? As in it's, since we are following the author through these other texts, mm -hmm. and what seems to be happening is that connections are being made that are, could not be made 
Um, well, I come back to this a lot, but I feel, I think one of the reasons visual art comes up so much in these, the essays in this book is because, um, I think that's one of my biggest influences in writing. And so I think I, I am a very, um, tactile and, um, visual essay planner. So cutting up other people's quotes and sort of putting them in different arrangements is very much how I construct an essay. Um, and I love the idea. I, I'm glad that, that you experienced it as a guiding because uh, um, I, f- I feel like especially that piece feels like kind of a, a guided uh, meditation or a guided kind of visualization in some ways. Um, but yeah, I think that this piece in particular feels very much, especially because it came about in such a um, mysterious way, more like collage. And I think collage, you know, has this history of being um, kind of a a mystical process that gives us access to things that we don't even know. You know, I I feel like I'll lean on that a little bit (laughs) as an idea. But I think going from there, it did take a little bit of work for me to locate my voice as a way of moving through an essay because I think I at the time that I wrote that essay was relying a lot on scrapping together other people's ideas so it's a different style I guess anyway I could just jabber on about that (laughs) yeah I wanted to know if there's a premeditated parallel drawn between your mentioning of how the surface of a pool can be like an illusion for either the sky or it's so murky like the sky is cloudy, if you drew the parallel between how King felt when he was being recorded and how he wanted to sort of step away from the illusion that you draw between, like, media and hmm. how they portray him and kind of make it real. Hmm. Yeah. That's... I don't think I... I don't think I had thought about that particular connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first, let me say very well done. Thanks. Uh, it was an excellent deliverance. But um, your reading was, was very calm. Um, you, you certainly emphasized certain points very well, but overall, you, you read your essay very calm. Um, however, in your essay, you recount very tragic, if not at the very least, sad or disappointing uh, moments in American history. Did any or all of these have any significant emotional impact on you in order to give you a drive for writing? Because I, I recall that you said um, you, you kind of tried writing it before, but it didn't really come out until after Rodney King had passed away. Mm-hmm. So was there any sort of emotional impact that really got you to to uh, finish the essay, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, in some ways I think it was also that um, I was more saddened by his death and I felt like you know when you hear that a celebrity has passed away and for some people it's a really deep grieving process and for other people it's not and I feel like um with with Rodney King that for some reason it just really bugged me I felt pretty sad about it for a while um and I think in some ways I was trying to kind of grapple with something about and just learning more about how hard he was trying to heal, um, maybe contextualize some of that. Um, yeah, but I think a lot of, a lot of the things that I write about in terms of news are things that I feel grief about. And I know it is sort of strange to have distance about it and then read it. Um, cause I sort of re-encounter the gravity of some of these things. Um, cause I'm kind of in here with you guys. <laughs> Then I'm like, oh, wow, okay, here, here we go. Um, and that's not even one of the more kind of like um, personal pieces. So um, sometimes I think my voice is doing something different than I was doing when I wrote it. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah quick, quick. follow up on my first comment. You're sort of paralleling Rodney King with David Hockney, in a sense, right? They, they're going in separate but parallel path that 
end up sort of at the same place in the center. Uh, being an artist myself, I understand your thing about Hockney and his contemplation as all whatever. But I don't quite understand Rodney King because not only are there different economic and sort of uh, intellectual levels, uh, but how did Rodney King have access to this sort of space about this other world? I, I'm not quite sure how that came about. I, I, I accept the fact that he had it, right? Because you sort of explained David Hockney and painting how he contemplates that relationship to the real world and how it exposes another world. But I didn't quite get how Rodney King saw this other world, except as a kind of like, it's sort of like not when I'm getting beat, mm -hmm. right? So, so that was, is it merely a kind of opposition that he have access to it? It's well, I don't, I mean, we all have access. Like, we all dream, we all have that inner world, I think. He talked about his relationship to memory in a way that evoked that. I think probably his process of writing this book, um, which was co-written, um, just may not have taken that path, but we all have a dream life and we all have access to that kind of imaginative space. So I think I, one of the joys of reading his biography was to locate sort of references to it, but... They were, David Hockney is very long-winded about his experience, about his imagination and that space, but I don't know that that means he had any different experience of it than Ronnie King did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that can also lead to someone whose life is taken up by other people's perceptions. They have almost no choice but to seek another avenue of, of conflict in their own life because it, it makes you question who you really are if so many people have an opinion of who you are. And that whole idea, going back to um, this reflection, the reflective surface and the reality that the media creates, too, I feel like going back to what you had said. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And that also subjects somebody to an act of dreaming because they're subject to the false, you know, notion of the other and their perspective, which is a projection of perversion. Yeah. And so you're subjecting to this middle space between dream and reality. And I think it's something you also do with your reading of um, writing as well because you interweave these real moments into these metaphors, which then are almost like bridging these gaps between these differences. But it's, you know, you're, and it, I find almost it's fine like the blanket. I can't remember what you said. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, term to bring into the conversation, double or triple consciousness and the way that because maybe you are a media figure or because you're a person of color, because whatever reason society has these ways of projecting onto you, that that's this other self that you have to negotiate. And in some ways it sort of relates back to that sort of triangle. I don't know, I feel like we should be drawing all of these. <laughs> Maybe, should we do one more? Yeah, I think it, I thought it was such, an, a, such a great essay because it felt so much like Los Angeles. Huh. You know, I, I grew up in L.A. in the same era, and it feels like L.A. is a city of multiple realities all at once layered on yeah. top of each other. And I think so much of what you're working with in this essay lends itself to that. So for me, it's really an essay about kind of the heart of what Los Angeles is to a lot of different people. Yeah. Yeah, and you thank you. Want to, like, sketch it out and you yeah. know, connect everything, and that's how the city is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really felt it, because um, I've been away from it for a while. And it, um, I think being here, which is cl much closer um, in terms of weather and um, vegetation to Los Angeles than Tucson is, I, I'm also kind of brought back to it, but reading it, I felt very much like I was still there. As a piggyback off of that, when did you know that this had to be in Los Angeles? At what point during the writing process did you arrive at L.A. being such a concrete setting for 
all these different threads. I was just, that's where I was when I wrote it. So just was the occasion for writing it um, came about when I was there. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was a truly lovely conversation. I don't always enjoy Q&As, but I really enjoyed that one. So thank you. Mm -hmm.